Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everybody. You hear the sirens in the background? Ah, city life. I was hoping that you would get to hear the vehement... Uh, argument that was going on in the apartment building next door, but they apparently resolved their differences or something. Or they died. <laughs> wow. It got real dark real quick. Uh, hey, welcome to Snark Monkey. I'm going to say number 26. Oh, heaven forbid you could pull up your own website, Larry, and just see what the next number should be. Yeah, 26. This is Alan Wenkus. Now, I've known Alan for years and years as a comedy writer for a company called Premier Radio Networks, now called Premier Networks, when there was a comedy and prep department that existed in uh, full flower during its heyday. He was part of it from very early on, but all through that time, Alan was a working writer in other areas. Now, he's got an interesting story. It's a Hollywood story, and much like many of the people I talk to here, he went through many different incarnations in his life um, growing up in New England, and you'll hear all about that. But most, uh, most prominently, if you look at Alan's IMDb, there are two entries on Underwriter, basically. A movie he wrote in the 80s, a wacky teen comedy that he disavows any connection to these days, even though he will tell you the full story. And it has a very high, currently very high profile actor, not so much at the time. There is a very long gap. And now he is one of the credited writers on the new movie about NWA, the uh, groundbreaking rap hip hop group. Uh, out of the uh, south, out of uh, South Central here in Los Angeles, called Straight Outta Compton, which is going to be coming out in August. How this extremely very Caucasian uh, gentleman ended up being a part of that is also part of his story, and it's a good story. And I think the NWA movie is going to be excellent. Uh, Alan's very funny. He's got a, uh, his tenacity at staying at it all these years. And to finally see a script with a major studio and major stars that's going to have a big push behind it and is probably going to do very well, to see it come to fruition is kind of inspiring. And to hear about his journey along the way is pretty cool. And there's a lot of fun stuff in there, including, here are two words you may have never heard before, frontier gynecologist. Oh, it's all in here. Everything. Are they arguing? Are they arguing again? I think they're arguing way off in the distance. No. Okay. Um, uh, Alan Winkus, Stark Monkey number 26. Enjoy. Sign in. No, you don't have to sign in. I'll give you a big, big, fun intro. Okay. Um, did you ever think I'd be interviewing you for anything? How weird is that? Gosh, I, 
you know, I, it, it was my biggest fear, Larry. That, or, or fantasy. Yeah, one day I'd walk into a dark room and it was your voice and I was going to be judged. <laughs> That's exactly what this is. You right. don't mind that I don't turn any lights yeah. on. However, I will put this spotlight on, on your head yes. to start the, you sweating. It's um, like defending your life, the Albert Brooks movie, you know. I You're so- going to show clips. <laughs> So much. Actually, I am because I realize there are a couple of things that deserve like little audio aside. So we'll get to that when we get to that, because you have an interesting path to get to where you are right now, which is uh, I mean, you've been writing a long time. I've known you in the radio world, but you've been writing uh, for as long as I've known you as well. But the gap between something that, you know, gets made has been kind of kind of big yeah, this I mean, one which is a bummer but it's also pretty exciting and and here's the fir- we'll get to this eventually but i just don't understand exactly how maybe one of the whitest guys i know is one of the credited writers for an nwa movie on the biggest black film this summer <laughs> perhaps yes and, uh well we can explain that later okay but, but i think that's, I, I have a good explanation okay, good, for that. because that will that will be the culmination of answers when we get to that okay. where did you grow up where were you born I was born in uh, Waltham, Massachusetts, but I really grew up in Natick, Massachusetts, in Framingham, Mass., which is like 16 miles west of Boston. All right. So you're a New England guy. I am. I went to Boston University. Yeah, stayed in Boston. Yeah. Uh, what? What? Uh, you need that, that's where. Do you? Would well, you say you have an accent? Is that? Uh, I. I think a, I used to. There's something going on in yeah, there. Yeah, there is. When it, probably when I start talking Boston and I start. Does it come I, out? Yeah, when you a go little back? bit. You know. Yeah. Do you so, have like family there? Ties there? Do you go back at all? I don't really, my family kind of scattered. Yeah. And nobody's really in what I would call a hometown anymore. Do so. you feel a connection to it though at all? Or does it just seem like distant or, because you've yeah, lived out little. here, you've lived here longer than you've lived anywhere yeah, else. Yeah. I think I feel a connection to the Boston Red Sox, you know? Seriously? Yeah. I mean, yeah? because I grew up and it's like the Red Sox. And you kind of had no choice. I yeah. Think, so I was exploring doing a movie about Ted Williams and that brought me back to Boston and that brought me back to, Oh, my connection is with Boston. And yeah. it was the, you know, they said this at Field of Dreams, but it was the one thing I connected with, with my father, where you're right. like, we could always talk about the Red Sox. You oh, know? Wow. well, that's a lot, especially for a, a different generation who, you know, the touchy feely parents that weren't, or especially dads, the touchy feely dads weren't around. Yeah. Now there's way too many of them. Yeah, exactly. It's like way too and again, much to the other extreme. You can have a text relationship with your parents now, too. So. <laughs> exactly. That's our poor kid, man. We can get him on <laughs> Skype and he's, he moved 3,000 miles away to get away from us, but we can track him down on Skype and have to talk <laughs> to him. Remember when you and I went to college and the only way your parents could find you is if you happened to be in the room where the telephone yes, was exactly. at the time? Or the hallway, uh, dorm phone. Oh, God. Yeah, that's you know, right. I'm not. Here. That's right. Or if you just weren't around, you didn't talk to them for a yeah. couple of weeks because you were, a, you know, an obnoxious teenage kid. <laughs> exactly. You, you forgot about them. What kind of kid were you? Were you creative right away? Were you funny right away? I Because you've always written, for people who don't know you, despite this new project, you've always written comedy. I mean, that seems to have yeah. been your bent for many years. I think in a, if I had to evaluate what happened, I think... Um, <laughs> what happened? Well, I mean, like in third grade, I think I started being funny. I yeah. think I saw... That I could be funny and be more outgoing and stage little plays. There must have been a moment. There must have been that one that sticks in your mind as, oh, this is, I can make people laugh at doing something that I just did. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I used to imitate Charlie Chaplin and I'd put on the little mustache and I'd walk around and with a ruler and whack people and thought it was funny. And- How old are you? Third grade. Third grade. Third grade. And they would let me do it. Yeah. I think I think this is before they medicated you. They would just <laughs> let me wind down. 
You know? <laughs> oh, this was their way of just letting right. you kind of get Let help. Alan wind down. Yeah. Sometimes they give me a stack of stuff afterwards and go, put one of these under every door. And you realize it was the wind down. Well, it know? was busy work. Yeah, you'd come back like, <sighs> all right. But were, had you discovered Chaplin? Was that something you knew or was it? Yeah. Yeah, they used to show them on probably, it might have been a PBS station, and they would have like music. And they would also have a narrator because it was a silent movie. Right. So they would go, looks like Charlie's in trouble again. That's right. And you'd be watching. They tried and, to make him more right. for modern audiences. And they would like fit in with the little rascals and stuff. <laughs> and they would have that narrator walking him through. Charlie doesn't exactly know what to do here. <laughs> but the music and the voice seemed to fit. Yeah. And so yeah. And that's but, when I was drawn into being funny and being creative. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Uh, and, and people still will tout that. I mean, we've talked to people. Who are say younger than us? Who still talk about the Marx Brothers with that kind of reverence? Kind of, you know, it's easier to find that stuff now. Yeah. I guess it discover. Oh, now, yeah, yeah you can. Back find then, anything. there were like three TV channels. Yeah. And so because for it, me, it, it was on. like uh, the station out of Dallas that would show classics every Saturday, Sunday, but they would rotate rotate through the same libraries. It would be all the Universal horror films, mm -hmm. and then when they were done with that, it would be all the Abbott and Costello movies. Right. So for the longest time, that's all I. It was like. The scary ones and Evan Costello. <laughs> hey, Abbott! Yeah, which I loved. Was I mean, that Universal too? I think it was. It might have been. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they used to have, God, what did they used to call that stuff in Boston? The creature feature. Or, oh, sure. They every, had some. Every yeah. market had one right, of those. Right, right. Oh, God. So, we, uh, we, so you ended up going to BU. What did you study there? I studied theater and film. Okay. So yeah. were you in, like, acting classes? I was in acting classes. Did and... you double major or something? No, it was just, it was more like a, a it wasn't communication as, school. Oh, okay. But uh, no, I did. I was in the same school that Alex went to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My son went right. to BU. He studied uh, like the acting acting track of the theater school. You And you were there with some big names, right? I was there with Gina, oh, excuse me, Gina Davis, um, Michael Chiklis, Jay Green's... Jay Greenway, who became Jason Alexander, <laughs> and uh, Nina Tasler, right? Was yes, she, yes, yes. Nina. Who's like the queen of NBC? CBS. On CBS. Yeah. I'm so got him. It's the company. I the the lights just went off. Yeah. <laughs> and she's listening right now. Uh, what an idiot! Uh, wow, that's interesting. Did yeah. You, did you um, know any of those guys? I uh, not very well. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't like my buddies, but they were around, and I knew them. Who knew? You know, these were people to keep in touch with, you know. But BU has a reputation for, like, classically training you and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Were you immersed in the classics? Were you doing plays? I was. Or were you more behind the scenes? And or? when I think about it now, Larry, I think about, I took a lot of, um, you know, I, you read a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of the Greek playwrights. Right. And I realized that's what got me into writing, too, because all the structure came out of there. Everything, three-act structure, everything that's going on in film you can trace back to what the Greeks were doing and Shakespeare. And then it, everybody just took all that stuff and revamped it. And it's the same stuff. Well, that's interesting because you've always been, you've always, you and I have talked a lot about movies and stuff and, and writing. And, and you've always felt like you are a good structure guy. You mm -hmm. understand story. I mean, to, to you, that's, that's, yeah, that's my strength. your strength. Yeah. Um, and you recognize that right away. Now, see, it's funny you say that. I don't know that it, I would ever look at it that way, but you're right. I mean, the the template was set with those mm -hmm. guys, and then Shakespeare just kind of followed through on it and and blew it out a little bit. But it's mm -hmm. still kind of basically the same. Thing. Yeah, it was. It's you know, you want to just get it down to its simplest form, but that boy meets girl, boy loses girl stuff goes all the way back, 
And then they, the three act structure where the third act has taken it into a dramatic place that, yeah. did not, you know, they just, just, yeah, they, it's all there. You don't see a lot of romantic comedies ending with the guy gouging his eyes out <laughs> at the end. <laughs> not a lot of those. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, the structure is there. And uh, yeah, I, I don't claim to be an expert, but I, I'm saying that when I write a film, I realize, you know what? I have a natural ability with structure from reading all those plays. Well, know? that's what any of the guys, you know, who is it? Bob McKee, who is the most famous, mm-hmm. you know, script I took one of those courses. Teacher. Yeah. I mean, they all say structure is everything. This is what it is. Don't try and reinvent the wheel. This is how it, I mean, you can be creative and you can do amazing things if you're a good writer, but don't try and go yeah. off, veer off the path. As a, an example is, um, I've been getting into more biopics because of the NWA movies, but um, I took a look at everything, and you see a couple that just tried to be different, like the John Belushi movie, which is oh, just... Wired? Yes, it's oh, disappeared off the radar. It yeah. is so drastically bad, but they tried to do something different. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, hey, we're going to have him do this. He's going to wake up out of his body bag, and we're going to walk through his yeah, life. Yeah, he's going to be like a companion yeah. for this somebody, and, you know. But I mean, for... five minutes in, you're like, what a disaster. <laughs> You know, you can't even watch it. You know, you're like, I I have no connection to this character anymore. You know, the way they're doing it. Did so. you discover, did you watch some that you had forgotten were really good as far as, like, what would you say are the quintessential biopics that, or the ones you kind of turn to for that? Jeez. Um, I, you know, it's funny. Uh, I looked at them all and I had problems with them all. Really? But um, <laughs> some of them just, like, walk the line to me. It you know this Reese Witherspoon won the Academy Award. Yeah. You're like, wow, she's great, but to me, it was too depressing. And <clears throat> you know, Joaquin Phoenix doesn't even smile. He, it's the whole movie. You're yeah. just in a bummer mood because of him. You know, even, even his high points, you just didn't feel you were enjoying the high points of his life. But yeah, it's because there's been quite. I mean, especially over the last couple of years, but they just seem so formula like. Um... Like Ray felt yeah, Ray, formula um, and Walk the Line felt formula, and but you're right, in a kind of a darker way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't get excited about any of them, I have to admit. I think probably... the last biopic I really loved, I have to say, was Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I thought because it was just the filmmaking was, was so interesting and then Denzel was so great in that, but I don't, yeah, and even I'm Gandhi even... was not like, okay. yeah, oh, yeah, you go, you know. There are a whole bunch that yeah. you, that are real pieces of art, but um, sometimes uh, you just I don't know. You're looking for a little more of an uplifting experience, and a lot of these biopics, honestly, there's a looming tragedy hanging over a lot of them. You well, know? that's I mean, to me, that's what makes some of those characters the most interesting. I think the most maybe that's why I like Malcolm X is that it, they didn't necessarily, lack of a better term, whitewash it. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, that's a very complex individual. That's one of the most highly touted bios of all time. Mm-hmm. But the others tend to be... They, when you're talking about music bios especially, they yeah. all have a looming tragedy. I mean, Jim Morrison, you know what's coming. Yeah, exactly. You know, Elvis or anything like that, you're like, well, they, they just did one on Hank Williams. <clears throat> he died at 29. Yeah. So you're you're watching the movie going, well... You know, oh, or a Buddy Holly story, which yeah, people exactly. Tell They're all going all down the in the plane, 
<laughs> and it's going to happen in the yeah. next you know hour. And the problem with that is that the device is always some foreshadowing. You know, they yeah. always have to make some sort of plain reference, and, and then you're like, oh, oh, that's <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, but somewhere around the Boston period is when you started doing stand up. Am I right? I did. Yeah. I started doing stand up, and it was the it was the heyday of Boston comedy. And this is when Lenny Clark and Stephen Wright. And yeah, this was a. Re- I mean, that was a real hotbed mm-hmm. for some major. I mean, Leno had n- yes, kind of Leno, come through. Leno was Leno didn't play the clubs I played. He was playing like strip clubs in the combat yeah, zone. Yeah, he talks but, about doing some yeah, really shitty he was, places. He didn't play the because what he would do was go to clubs where he had forty five minutes, and what we were doing were clubs that gave you ten minutes. Right. You know? But so, they had the they had the name. Yeah. yeah, they were like the Comedy Connection, and you had like ten comics that night. You know, so you were around some of these guys. That <clears throat> I was. Yeah. It was it was really the heyday of comedy. And what happened was uh, I didn't I didn't see a full career in it, so I didn't continue when I moved to L.A. I mean, I did a little, but I really did the bulk of it in Boston. During my college years, yeah, and what, it was during the heyday of that. But time. was that how was that good for your writing? Or I mean, what uh, you, you must have gotten something out of it. Do you look back at that as like? I guess so. Uh, yeah, constructing because jokes. observations. Yeah, it, it got me into radio comedy where you and I yeah. met. But uh, yeah, I guess it did. I felt stand up uh, was a little nerve wracking. It was great to walk around all day being witty, but when you said, I have to be witty at 9.15 in front of a group of strangers, and it did. It, it kind of stressed yeah. you out all day. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have the, uh, I don't know, I didn't well, have it the- it takes a certain type. Yeah, yeah where you're mean, like, oh, I'm just going to let it go and have fun, but yeah. I did two shows once out here at a club where I didn't do well, and then I did the next club at UCLA or something, and I kicked ass with the same material- in the same set, and you're like, that's what I mean about being nerve-wracking. You never know. Right. You know, the audience is going to decide how you do. Well, and, it's a it's a sadomasochistic existence. I mean, I think yeah. most comics are always looking for that second, you know, thing you described. And then when they get the bad, I mean, when they're really committed and they get that really bad night, they go, oh, crap, I got to go out there and try it. I mean, it's a real addiction yeah. kind of thing. The almost. best night I ever had was a night that I just didn't care. <laughs> and I remember saying things and the audience is cheering afterwards. And you're like, what did I just say? You know, <laughs> and those are the nights you're like, wow, I found the zone where I've used my material, but I'm able to let it go and work yeah. out the audience because their reactions and things were ha- giving me improv. Right. But um, I don't know. I just sometimes I think I could have just kept going. But for me, stand up was like, where are you going to end up? You're going to get a sitcom. You're going to end up on a talk show. How many of these comics are going to rise up? And well, there, it also must have been a glut. I mean, that was probably oh, that was an it. oversaturation. Yeah. There were so many. You were probably around a lot of bad comics yeah. as well. Everybody and his brother wanted to be a stand up. Yeah. When I started, it wasn't a glut. But then in the early 80s, it really. Yeah, totally. All these clubs were popping up. And then cable came along. And when cable oh, came along, that's right. All it the was specials. Like, a night at the improv and the oh, the comedy God. night at this and yeah, because um, I was playing uh, the Ice House in Pasadena, the Improv in Hollywood. I'd play the Comedy Store once in a while, and there was a little club in West LA called Igby's. Oh yeah, Igby's, and that that was owned by the same guy who owned the Ice House in Pasadena, Chan Smith, I think his name was, and that was the heyday. But then. You're right. Everybody wanted to be a comic. Yeah. And every little club or deli 
with a room, started doing open mic nights. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they would just put, put uh, like a, a platform in the corner, and Tuesday night would be, hey, it's comedy night. <laughs> and it was never built for comedy. It was just, I hosted, this was like mid-80s, I was working at KISS FM. And there was a place called Baxter's in Westwood. Do you remember Baxter's? Baxter's, yes. You know, you know, bad ferns and chrome mm-hmm. and all that, you know, terrible 80s decorating. Right. And they literally just put a stage in the middle of what would be like their dance floor or something. <laughs> and I hosted, I guess, a couple of nights there. I mean, Bob Saget went up one night. I have a real distinct memory of it. And he was funny as hell. But it was just a terrible room for that. It was designed for, you know, bad... Yeah. You know, food, fried food, basically. They're just trying to bring in people to buy yeah. drinks and they're trying everything and they're saying, oh, it's working over at the improv. My worst night, I had a manager at one point who booked me into a club and I was opening for Dice. And I thought it was Andrew Dice Clay. And they're like, hey, you're opening for Dice. And I'm like, oh, well, that's not bad. That's so I big. show up and it's not Andrew Dice Clay. It's a dog act. And the dog's name is Dice. And they want me to hold the hoop. Before my set, they're like, hey, by the way, you're going to be part of my set. You're holding the hoop for dice. You are making all am, of this up. I'm not making it up. That's, Where was that? This is a, I actually walked out of that gig. Good. They, <laughs> yeah, I went to the phone, called the manager. I go, it's not dice. It's a dog. <laughs> well, you know, you're still getting your 50 bucks. You're like, I don't think... So See, I if walk, there was yeah. anything you could point to that might have discouraged you from pursuing the life in comedy, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's in stand-up anyway. A little bit. But, yeah, there was some gigs where people were just booking you into any place that had yeah. a room. Yeah. Oh, God. That just makes me, yeah. like, my chest That was the one I walked on, yeah. <laughs> so, but at some point you must have realized that you you could write funny and that you had more control over kind of where they Now, did you when did you end up in New York? You had already moved to L.A.? or I had moved to L.A. Yeah. And what were, I was, you, what were you trying to get going here besides the stand-up? Were you writing scripts I was yet? writing. <clears throat> I wrote my first script around that time, and I, I sold it to a company called Unity Pictures. This is, this is around 1983, 84. Oh, are we talking hmm? this is private? Yes. Yeah, oh. that, yeah I'm saying. Oh, you did, God. If you want to go all the way back, Everybody I was doing stand-up. Everybody just turn the, turn the volume up and, <laughs> and savor this story. Here is a Hollywood story for you. Well- Basically, I wrote Johnny Depp's first movie. Yes. So, oh, well, well, yeah. well oh, oh. spoiler alert. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought you were telling No, build some oh, okay. suspense, well, Alan. Right, Come on, sorry. structure, structure. Right. We'll cut that part. <laughs> Snip. Snip here. Um, <clears throat> what happened was I wrote a script, and it was about a crazy, you know, I was in my early 20s, so it was a couple of crazy guys go to a resort and it was actually a funny story. We were basing it on the meatballs and stripes yeah, formula. Yeah, these were hot yeah. kind of movies at the time. Yeah, the teen comedies. Right. Yeah. And we, I had me and a, uh, my co-writer's name was Ken Siegel. And we wrote this funny story. And the story was basically this rich guy and his, his slacker Bill Murray-esque son. And he's like, he can't find anything for his son to do. So he goes, look, I'm buying this resort. Will you go to Florida, check out the resort, Stay a week and then give me a report. He figures his son can handle that. But his son goes to the resort, just creates total mayhem, destroys the place. And by the time the father arrives, the place, the price has been lowered so much by the damage <laughs> that he's actually like, good job, you know, because now he's paying much less. <laughs> oh, but, so everybody wins in the end. Uh, but slackers win. Yeah. That's that was perfect. our, it was a funny meatball esque kind of, you know, story. Yeah. We sold it to Unity Pictures. They sold it to TriStar, and the movie was getting made, and I was an 
I was walking around on a cloud going, hey, I'm making a movie. Can you and, say, do you remember how much, I mean, did you make like a decent amount on it? Did you, I mean, what, for you at the time, at the was time, it like, in my Ooh. early 20s, the payday was like 30 grand. Oh, which, dude. Yeah. Which was fantastic, you know. 80s money. That's, yeah. that's pretty and sweet. Plus, uh, we got brought back for a rewrite, which was like another 11 grand. So, and that, yeah, we weren't spending that kind of money. You know, my, my rent at the time was like 300 bucks a month. Sure. And, yeah, you know what so, I mean? So, no, yeah, yeah, you were you were rolling <laughs> yeah, in dough. It was and, it, and also, in your mind, it's like, oh, this is easy. This it was is fantastic. like your yeah. first script, right? right? Yeah. So, you're on the path. And I'm just writing fun stuff. I didn't have to do any research. Yeah. But what happened was, um, so they, during the time between selling the script and the time I was brought in for the rewrite was... um. I got canned because they, they brought in like five directors and each director would come in and add his notes. Finally, the fifth director came in. He's just looking for a reason to get rid of me and, and my partner. You <laughs> yeah, know, he's like, yeah. so we're going to take out the opening. We're going to do this. And I'm like, shouldn't we go all the way through to the end before we start changing the first act? You know, and he's like, <laughs> you're out of here. Oh, wow. And so I got canned. And then about a month later. Oh, and by the way, it was not pretty. It's like, you're out of here. You don't know what you're doing. You can't even type. And you're like, okay. So about a month later, the producer calls me. He's like, how come I never hear from you? And I'm like, well, Ben, I was humiliated and screamed at and fired. He goes, wow, you weren't so bad. Come on back. So I come back. Dude, with the same director? No. The oh. director right now. The director another, yet another director. Yeah, another director. Were there any names connected to it like you could remember at this? Or the director's Are these wise? just journeyman kind of guys? Uh, the big guy who fired me was a guy named Boaz Davidson, who's gone on to a pretty good career oh. if you Google him. Yeah. Um, as a producer mainly. Yeah. And the guy who ended up directing it was a guy named George Bowers, who was really an editor. And he edited a lot of Eddie Murphy movies in the eighties, Harlem Nights and even all the way to Boomerang. And he, I think he edited, uh, A League of Their Own. And so he was a real editor and he had directed Private Resort because Boaz dropped out for whatever reason. I think him and the producer fought over a car he wanted in his contract, <laughs> you know? And so they brought me back. And when they brought me back, it was a new director, and they had changed the entire script. And yeah, because the for for those of us who know and love Private, <laughs> private Resort, right? Right. Um, know that it stars not only Johnny Depp but a young Rob Morrow. Rob Morrow was the star, and Johnny yeah. was unknown. Yeah. And uh, and Rob was like a Broadway actor, and uh, you know he considered himself on his way, and Johnny was much more. Thank you for the job, kind of a guy, because he has. But it turned into a buddy film as opposed to a father-son thing. Yeah. They, all they kept was the resort and my page numbers. <laughs> That's a good line. I like that. <laughs> You're literally going. You've changed every single thing. Do you recognize anything from it now? If you were to watch, I mean, uh, well, what happened was after the director fired us, and then a couple months went by, they brought us back to do a dialogue polish because the director who had done the rewrite was Israeli. And he would be like, Boaz, and he would be like, so the man walks in the room and he says to the girl, I want to make sex with you. <laughs> and this is in the script. This is, this is when it, around the time. No, yeah, I was getting fired. I'm like, well, shouldn't it be make love, have sex? No, I want to make sex. Write it down. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I kind of want to see that movie. <laughs> I kind of want to see that one. So they brought us back and said, okay, you got to rewrite the dialogue because it's kind of clunky. You know, and we're like gosh, this movie really looks horrible, but I'll take the payday. So they gave us like another 11 grand to rewrite the dialogue. and But it wasn't enough to make it back to our movie. It was still not our movie anymore. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? 
It was just completely different. These guys won a contest. They went to a resort. They ran around. It was like a Three Stooges movie. It was literally, it was literally like a guy and a girl sitting at a table and the guy would spill wine on his pants and the busboy would go under the table to wipe his pants. And then the guy would hand his pants to the busboy. You know what I mean? It's right out of the Three Stooges thing or something. And you're literally going, wow. Why do I still want my name on this? Because it, it was getting made. And right. at this point, Larry, I'm not kidding. This is when you realize what happens in Hollywood. The studio had already greenlit the movie and they were going to make the movie. So they didn't really care what the script looked like anymore. They just wanted a shooting script. Yeah. And that's when you realize, wow, once this thing gets in the system and they've got a release date and they want to make it. Yeah. They don't care anymore. If you don't think the script is good, they're like, whoop. They, got, somehow they've done the research. They already see a market. They are, they yes. they just figure Look, based on yeah. Porky's and the things right. that were going on that really kicked ass. It's going to go out. It's going to make the money back, yeah. and that's all we care. Yeah, about. Yeah, it was only like a three million dollar movie. As and, long as there's cute guys and bare boobs, which I assume there are some toplessness, and uh, <laughs> there were some other people. Andrew Dice Clay was in it, and oh, that's uh, right, Hector Elizondo. What is that? What I'm Hector Elizondo, I think. Yeah, yeah. who was in a lot of Gary Marshall movies. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it. I mean. It's it's funny because it is this weird claim. I mean, you have enough distance from it now. Just the Johnny Depp collection, right. con, connection alone. Yes. Is has he ever talked about it? Have you ever like heard him mention it in passing? Uh, I think we so, both whited it, it off our resume. <laughs> no, it's still there. But, yeah. <laughs> you can't get it say, off IMDb, man. At one point, Rob Morrow had a quote in like Us Weekly or something, and it said, Johnny and I are trying to buy the negative and destroy it. <laughs> And I, I actually cut that out. I'm like, hey, look, they're talking about the movie. <laughs> and, but what happened was Johnny was great. And I got to know Johnny Depp. And he so was, you were around the set a little yes, bit? Yes, I went to the set and hung around. And Johnny considered me the writer. The other writer who had come in and demolished it, the director, he was gone. Yeah. So I was the only guy, me and my partner, Ken Siegel, who didn't really hang around that much. So whenever I went on the set, Johnny Depp was run over. He was so gracious. That's interesting. So what did, did you get a sense? I mean, was he taking this seriously? He was trying to kind of yeah. find a character and find Absolutely. the timing. And he, yeah. he was taking every, like he would come up and go, what do you think? How do you think I'm doing in this scene? And take a look at the scene. And I would go, I didn't write this. This is the first time I'm seeing it. You know, <laughs> oh, he's that's... like, well, they just handed it to me. Didn't you write the movie? I'm like, technically, <laughs> but he was, Johnny was, um, very eager to learn, and yeah. he was such a nice guy. And so he was, this was his really his first. He had done film, a small right? part in Nightmare on Elm Street. That's right. Oh, that's right. And it was all the same year. You yeah. Know? He bounced over here. This is this is a much bigger part. Not as good a movie, but much bigger part. It's kind of a co-lead for him as opposed to yes. like an ensemble thing that he had done. This a was the there. one that started making him kind of a teen idol. Yeah. Which he kind of resisted. You know. Yeah, he didn't do much of that after, after Twenty One Jump Street. What happened with Johnny was um, just a jump was after this movie, he did a small part in Platoon. Right. Where he was the translator. And that, he, he had good management. They were like, you know what? You've got like 10 offers to do 10 more teen comedies. Let's do something better where you're just in a small role that gets some attention. Yeah. He could have done that for the next 10. I mean, there yeah. are other guys like that who have, you know, Brad Pitt could have been that guy. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Cruz was that guy for a little while. He did. He did yeah. something called losing it or something. Oh, yeah. God, it's terrible. And then, Shelley Long. Yeah, yes, exactly. And people don't consider, um, what was the big movie? Uh, um, the Risky Business. Yeah. Because that was more of a quality. It didn't have like nudity and bouncing boobs and pools. 
So even though it was aimed towards a teen audience, it was a little smarter. I think. Yeah, it, yeah, and it had a, a real style to it right. too. That was that direction. It had was its own. Yeah, yeah. So before that, he had done what I considered a yeah. teen comedy. Yeah. So out of that experience, how disillusioned were you, or were you just motivated to try and come back from that, or did you just reject L.A. <laughs> oh no, I, I was in the uh, I was in you the felt machine. Like you were in there. I was there. We were getting. Right. I had agents. We were going Is this to a matter of you, you're able to kind of make a bit of a living by writing and working on stuff that never sees the light of day? Is that one of those uh, things? Some of it. Yeah. Cause the, to make a living didn't cost much back then. You know, <laughs> if you could survive on 30 grand a year and do pretty well. Yeah. And your car was paid for and you're living in a house with three cared. other guys. That's all you, know? you cared about. Yeah. yeah. Had but, food um, on the table. What happened during that time, Larry, is uh, I got a, I had an agent and I had a whole bunch of offers and different things. And one of the things that came across to me, was Jim Varney. And Jim Varney was making all these car dealership ads. Hey, Vern! Yeah. And he was doing them all over the country. They were customized right. to different and markets. This was his thing. And, yeah. and this guy named, I think his name was John Cherry. Yeah. John Cherry came to me and to my agent and said, show me a reel and said, we want to make movies with Jim Varney. And I, I literally went, I, this looks so ridiculously stupid. How can I make a movie with this guy? You know, and I turned it down. I turned down Jim Varney. Oh, so only you, because you know it wasn't like they were offering me a bunch of money. So you could have been the the, the earnest guy. Yes, I could have. Ernest goes to camp, and Ernest gets his head stuck in the toilet. You know, which I think it was the sixth one. I missed that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. damn it! I, they not, <laughs> they lost me at number four. Right. Yeah, I just didn't feel like it had the freshness of the first <laughs> several. Yes, exactly. There were so uh, many un unanswered questions in Ernest Seven. That's but, so funny. But uh, yes, that that was during that time. This is the kind of stuff I was involved in, yeah. and I I was writing specs, um, but. I was getting a lot of stuff optioned. I wrote a, I was getting paid for stuff, but getting paid was these small paydays, 25 grand, 30 grand, but it was enough. Yeah. And when now, you asked, yeah. How in the world did you end up in New York then? Because you ended up in radio. Right. I, what, I, yeah. What happened was I was doing, still doing stand up. And uh, half of my act, by the way, was making fun of these producers I was working for <laughs> who would come to the show and I just mocked them. Horribly. And know. they loved it. Oh, right? yeah. They were going, I just wrote half your act. <laughs> so, and then, but I'd be in these meetings the next day pitching, pitching movies, and these executives would come in that didn't know I was there. Like a couple of times, this one guy, I think his name was Chuck Braverman, who was a TV executive, and he popped oh, yeah. into a meeting. He goes, Hey, name. John, I'm going to have lunch with you, you know. And I said, Hey, Chuck, I was uh, performing at Igby's last night. How you doing? Alan Wakis. I'm there to pitch a movie. And he goes, Hey, I love the way you made fun of Ben Ephraim. So you would run into these guys who saw you in the comedy clubs, and it would give you a little cred in the room. You yeah, know? Like, yeah. Oh, Chuck Braverman saw you. But what happened was I met a comedy team doing stand-up named Stevens and Gridnick. Stevens and Gridnick and I all became friends, and we started working on comedy albums. And this is the early 80s, mm -hmm. and those comedy albums got a lot of attention. Well, I was going to ask you about that because – I it took a few years of us working together at uh, at Premier, the company that we worked on comedy together, for me to realize you were part of that. Yeah. Because and I'm and I've been meaning to ask you, was that record specifically sent to radio stations? Yes. Okay. Because that's because I was in freaking Odessa, Texas, and I was pulling drops off that and playing yeah, stuff. It was. Uh... In fact, this is a good spot to drop in the. 
I would I want to say the drive-in segment right here. This would be is this Steven Zagrinik? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's called fast food. Fast food. I Ron wrote that. Ron Stevens. Yeah, okay. But it was on the first, or I think it was on the second album. Yeah. Retail comedy to wholesale prices, which I wrote half the album. Yeah. But that was the single. That That's they, right. They yeah. did release it as a single. They released it as a single, and that was literally written by Ron. It's it's still out there. It's on yeah. YouTube. You can right. find it in. A I bunch still of remember the music. Dum 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 dum. Did, did, did you get my order? A double cheeseburger, onion rings, and a large orange drink. You Probably, play that for people, yeah. and so many people recognize yeah. that. And, and uh, Rick Dees m- copied it, and he had done Disco Duck and stuff. So he tried to release it as a single under his own name with different voices. And Ron was like, we just wrote and produced that, Rick. Oh, and Rick was like, well, you stole it from Steve Allen. <laughs> it's like, well, that's a good defense. <laughs> No. But that, that but that thing got a lot of it did. traction. That it was got out that there. was the single. It so act- you did that here in L.A. We did it. And Ron had a studio in Granada Hills, and so I started working with them. And if you if if that album still exists, and I believe you can get it somewhere, um, you'll see that I'm listed as you know the co-writer of the whole album. The co- it's really funny, yeah. and it was well produced. They just had this kind of I don't know what you guys were patterning it after because if you'd been doing stand up, it's a very it's a produced album. It's yeah. not live bits. It was, it is, yeah. It's got like Firesign Theater, but wackier than that. You know, it's not Cheech and Chong, but it had a very specific quality to a it. A lot of parody commercials yeah. that we were starting to do. That I um, guess maybe SNL ish. I guess is yeah. the closest thing. Or, or you could Second com- City TV a little bit. Yeah, but what because it was SNL was, was so bad at the time, and this re- <laughs> this was actually better than yeah, anything right. that was going this is, on. This is after the big shakedown after yeah. everybody left and Aykroyd and Murray. But it's really strong. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's, it's strong. What Ron comedy. had enough sensibility, Ron Stevens, to say, "Let's create stuff that will get airplay," and that yeah. meant short. Right. You know, right. let's keep it a minute long, and uh, so we did it. And at that time. Ron got a job offer, Ron Stevens and Gridnick, to go to New York and Hunt 97, and they just said, come with us. So I had to go negotiate my my own deal, but, yeah, I went with them, and that's how I got to New York. So suddenly you're basically producing a show I'm producing, on the number writing, one, number one yes. radio market in the country. Competing against Howard Stern. Yeah, Hot 97 Hot in Hot 97, New York. and it was before it went completely hip-hop. Yeah. So it was Top 40, Paul Abdul... You yeah, know, it was pretty, Taylor Dane. It was dance oriented, yeah. but but hip. poppy and dancey. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you're getting up at what time? Oh, you, you will know at like four in the morning, right? In New York, and in New York, and now we're in the late '80s, and uh, I was the producer, the head writer, and I was doing all the on-air characters, and I was doing the straight news. So every half hour, it's like. <laughs> It was all. It's like Mayor Ed Koch says that needles on the beach will be stopped, and Zippy the whale has been spotted in New York Harbor. This and more, and the Hot ninety seven information update. Now, how did you adjust to living in New York during this time? Just personally, was this? Did you were you enjoying yourself, or was uh, this miserable? <laughs> it was. It started off fun. Yeah. But getting up at the four in the morning thing yeah. was the grind because people would come into town, or people would be hanging around New York. And you'd be like, oh, I have to go to bed at eight. You know. And they're like, why do you have to go to bed today? Because I have to be awake tomorrow. You know, we have to literally write the show. Yeah. So, um, Did you guys get any any kind of 
numbers? Did the show do okay? How it long did, okay. did it last? There was um, a couple of big competitions. One was the uh, Z100. Yes. And I believe Scott Shannon was there at the time. Yeah, he Scott, that was huge. Yeah. yeah, Scott Shannon was. And Jim Kerr was a guy in New York who had. Right, he's still there. Yeah, the way. and uh, I think he had been there so long yeah. that his audience just didn't know there were other stations, you yeah. know. And Howard Stern was coming up. Right. And then there was um, Don oh, Imus. God, that was. He- oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. And so there was a lot of um, crossover, I would say, attack banter. Like you would, and Page Six would pick it up. You know, the Page Six would go, Stevens and Grudnick say that Don Imus is a douchebag. <laughs> and, and, you know, then Imus says this, you know, and it was it, really competitive. It, it created more of a buzz, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, we didn't engage in it, engage in it as much, but we would respond to stuff funny. Right. Stern wouldn't get involved really, except with Imus. Him oh, and yeah. Imus went at it. Yeah. You know? He was always talking about yeah. bad about Imus. But we were in the middle of it. And, uh, and I will say that, Howard Stern was getting a lot of attention at the time. He hadn't become the brand yet, but I would tell my friends, I'm like, hey, tomorrow you got to tune into Hot 97. They're going to call NASA and it's me and I'm going to be talking about this. They go, I can't. I got to listen to Stern. Like, you can't listen at 810 tomorrow morning when I'm on the air doing the NASA bit. You know, I, so, I can't, you, I so you knew things were not going to take hold. <laughs> <We're my friends. laughs> Your old well, friends I'm are sorry, going, man, yeah, you know, can you send me a tape? Yeah. I, uh, yeah. Stern's oh. doing butt bongo. I, 810. I got to listen. So how long did that last, the morning show? Uh, two years. Yeah. And um, what happened was, um, honestly, I think they were going to put some money behind it. And um, they were going to uh, really promote the show and put Stevens and Critic on buses and all this stuff. But they, we got into a tussle about what they could do and what they couldn't do. And we were trying to write commercials. And they canceled the show based on... The difficulty it was to work with Ron and Joy on the publicity campaign. Oh. In my opinion, this is what happened because they'd, they'd be like, um, we want to do a commercial. And I would write it. I'd be like, how about this, Joy? You know, you're just coming up with anything. You're like, what about if Ron's the ventriloquist doll and he's on your lap and you're doing both voices? She says, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And you're like, well, how about this? You're coming up with anything until finally after a month, they're like, okay, we're not going to do a commercial. <laughs> you're like, they were going to do a commercial. I was going to save all our jobs. Now, whatever happened to those guys, those two? They had they uh, formed a syndication company called All-Star Radio. They went back to St. Louis, and uh, they did pretty well. Man. And now uh, they're, like, semi-retired. But I, I think they're pretty big celebrities in St. Louis. Oh, yeah? Because of – that's where they, they were on Casey for years. That's how – then they came to L.A., but they were considered – like real, authentic, legendary DJs in St. Louis. Interesting. I don't yeah. think I knew that. Yeah. So you pack up and come back to L.A. at that point? I almost got on Saturday Night Live as a writer. Um, oh. I knew all those guys were coming on our show as guests. Everybody was coming on our show as guests. It was New York You're, Radio. You, so, yeah, because you had a little bit of a comedy yeah. cred with those and guys. We, we had a uh, booker yeah. who would, you know, you weren't just booking people that were trying to promote something. You were booking anybody who just wanted to promote themselves. So we had a lot of the cast members come on and it and i became friends with a guy named whitney brown a whitney brown yes. yes and whitney brown brought me in and almost got me a job as a writer on saturday night live i was meeting with lauren michael's assistant they liked my material and then um one day i got a letter addressed to me in new york from nbc and it said it said oh, we're so sorry I'm no, it said at this time we're not hiring writers in September, but we're going to be looking again in January. But the the letter was addressed to somebody else, and it was but the envelope 
was sent was to me. To so I call NBC and I'm like, yeah, listen, uh, this is heartbreaking news, but it's addressed to, you know, Tiffany so-and-so. Um, should I change my name? You know, whatever I'm saying. And they're like, that was an honest mistake, Alan. You don't need to mock us. I'm like, I'm sorry, is this a comedy show? <laughs> they're like, you're being mean. Oh. So well, anyway, did, I did well, not Did it ever her. occur to you that that maybe they had meant to send you a, yeah, we'd love to work with you Well, well what happened was they went, oh, those are the two writers that we were saying maybe we'll work with you in oh. January. And she mixed up the envelopes. But at that point, I was like, you know what? The show had been canceled. I'm living in New York. It's expensive. And I had I had offers in L.A. for whatever. So I went back to L.A. And within about a month. I was sitting in Tim Kelly's office. That's uh, and Tim Kelly is the guy who, along with a few other people, I, I was telling you I was wor- I worked at Kiss FM in the eighties. There was a group of guys who were jocks and writers: Louis Planker, Tim Kelly, Steve Lehman. They started this little company called Premier out of one room, right? Uh, a few floors above where Kiss, F- Kiss FM was. For back a long time, they were using. Well, you know more than I do, but I, I think they were able to launched that thing because they were using the KISS facilities. Yeah, they and, would go in and yeah. use the studios, right, right. but then they'd go up to their one room as their, quote, office. Right. And, uh, but that turned into, ultimately, one of the biggest syndication companies in radio ever, and now part of the iHeartRadio, mm-hmm. you know, mothership or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they were looking for comedy writers. And, yeah, I and... had a, a really great demo from two years in Hunt 97. So I came into Tim's office. It was topical and funny. I knew the stuff to show him, you know. And he was like, at the time, they had Jeff Altman and Ronnie, Ronnie Shell, basically characters that Ruiz was doing. Yeah. And this is all Steve and Tim and Louise could pretty much muster up at the time. It was successful with Rick. And they were like, well, let's syndicate it. So I came in and said, no, you need songs and bits and all the little things that took more manpower. You right, know? right. Not stuff they could just get from Ronnie. They're and, just repurposing yeah. the yeah, stuff that exactly. was already on Rick's show, which was... Which yeah. was fine, but the, you, you felt like they needed to fill out yeah. the ranks. They a wanted bit. to do more, and I said, "Here's what's been successful for us in New York, plus what that album had done: retail comedy, wholesale prices, and the Stevens and Grinnick albums." So we started, but it's going to take more voices. It's going to take more production. You, we got to make commercials and stuff and songs. So they brought me in to spearhead that. Yeah. So uh, what were some of the signature bits you created over the years? Because oh. I just want to hear you say the words frontier gynecologist yes, for one. Tim, continue, I, I keep in touch with Tim, and that's my claim to fame with Tim is, this is the guy who wrote frontier gynecologist. <laughs> well, he came from New York when the West was young and the women wild and free. With a bag full of stirrups and a hearty ho high frontier gynecologist it's still one oh. of those i mean it's 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 embedded right. in my mind just as it, it could two words couldn't be more beautiful together if from a comedy perspective <laughs> it was a straight on western yeah <laughs> and uh the only doctor in town was a gynecologist but and, we had some interesting people come through there i mean corolla went through there mm-hmm. and ralph garman who's on k-rock now uh, jimmy kimmel quite famously was doing uh, his sports guy you know eventually through there there were a lot of interesting talent coming through who went on to, you know, some sure. big stuff. Yeah. I, how... I think K-Rock did a lot of launching, you know. Yeah. You know, completely. people ended up at K-Rock and bam. I mean, look what happened to Adam, you know. Oh, yeah. So, well, and Jimmy. I yeah. Mean, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, he's America's sweetheart now. Mm-hmm. He took over for Seacrest, I think, mm-hmm. as America's sweetheart. <laughs> um, how many years were you at Premiere? I was at Premiere 19 years. Wow. Yeah. And what did uh, – all, all during that period, you're – You've got side projects, you're writing mm-hmm. scripts, you're, you know, putting stuff out there. Um, never got discouraged with that? I mean, you... you a little bit. Yeah. 
Um, I got more discouraged sometimes when you sold something and then it just got held up. Yeah. And it didn't get made. How, did you, how did you not just give up at some point? I mean, because I'm, I'm going through that right now. I wrote a, a, a really fun, good, solid TV pilot that people who've read it loved with a couple in Austin, Texas. It's at CAA. Mm-hmm. It is in the deep, dark bowels of CAA. I've never talked to anybody at CAA. I don't know anybody <laughs> at CAA. I just, they happen to have representation because they came out of country music and had a CAA Ooh. agent. Uh, it's a woman named uh, Susan Haynes and her husband, Jeff. Um, she was a musician and she able, was able to use her CAA agent in music to get a connection in the TV department. Mm-hmm. So our script got in the TV department. Hey, we love your script. Nothing. New guy comes in. Hey, we, your script got up on the top of the stack. Great. And then you're not, I mean, it's like six years of that. It's so strange. Here's, what happened to me was around that time, around 91, 92, I had a script. It was called Silent Partners. And it, oh, I remember it was, this. this. You was, pitched this to me. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. you, yeah you, this told was, me, you took me through the whole pilot. Everybody loved it's it. It's really good. I had the... Um, the executive producer of In the Line of Fire, the Clint Eastwood movie, wanted to get involved. And they were just making In the Line of Fire. And I'd be on the set and there was Clint, you know, and I have the real story and the fake story of how I met Clint. The real story is, well, the fake story. Well, what's the fake story first? The fake story is where I'm on the set and and uh, Bob goes, who was the producer, hey, Clint, this is Alan Winkus. I'm working on a project with them. And Clint went, yeah, nice to meet you. Hey, Bob, I thought I said no assholes on the set. <laughs> Hey, that's a good rule. Hey, <laughs> that was my favorite. and the real story is um, Clint gave me a nod. Okay, <laughs> yeah, keep telling the fake story. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, so, so you have these moments where you get close. I mean, oh this yeah, is, what happens? What... I will tell you though, Bob uh, Rosenthal, who was one of the producers in In a Line of Fire, loved um, Silent Partners, and we had an agent over at William Morris named Cassian Elways, who's still there, and he packages stuff. And he liked it. And Bob went into my script, and uh, I I don't know how else, to, how else to describe it. He sucked the life out of it. He would go in and just take out lines and rearrange sentences, and I thought he knew what he was doing, so I'm typing everything he's telling me. And then one day we had a kidnapping scene where they're exchanging the baby, and he throws the kidnapper throws the package in the air, and a cat is in the package. And you realize it's not even the baby because you're horrified. He threw it in the air. And um, Bob, the line was something like, I guess the cat's out of the bag. And Bob goes, that's got to go. And you're like, that's the witty action film line. <laughs> you're taking out the witty action film line. <laughs> so that's when you realize Bob was just sucking the life out yeah. of it. So by the time we went back, I, I don't know, you know, he thought he knew what he was doing. But by the time we went back to William Morris, they were. They started giving it to actors, and everyone was passing. It didn't have the pop. You know, it seems like a cliche, Alan, that because it's been put in movies, and you know, almost the the stock character of the idiot executives. But there's a reason that's a cliche, is because, and, and can can you figure out where these? Is it just that they have to? legitimize their position by having an impact on it or do they think they have a better creative bent than some of the because there are good producers there are really good solid producers who can enhance projects and enhance writing and i know they're out there but it seems like the rule is executives and studio heads and people outside of the creative sphere 
we'll just go in and gut it. Yeah, and- I, my experience at Universal recently was better, but with Bob and In the Line of Fire, I will say Bob nitpicked stuff that was unimportant. So you're basically spending like an hour while he goes, you know, she enters the apartment carrying groceries, carrying groceries, she enters the apartment. And you're like, Bob, why are we rearranging that? Since she's in the apartment. She's got groceries. You know, and this is what Bob would do all day. He'd mark up your script and give it back. And nothing really changed yeah. except he was he was slowly taking the personality yeah, out yeah. of it. You know, it just it seems to me that it's it's one of those. I have to feel like that if I don't do anything, then I'm not doing my job. So I better mm-hmm. do as much as I can. Well, I thought Bob knew what he was doing. Yeah, he's you well, know, that's the thing. They present themselves right. as being very. He's the one who got us into William Morris. Yeah. So you're like, all right, Bob, what do you need me to do? And he would mark it up and I would do it. Well, it's and then, a tough fight to fight when you got somebody who's, you know, like also at the same time, he's your champion, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's backing you. So and you, I will honestly say Bob has not gone on and made a whole bunch of other movies. So maybe his over nitpicking <laughs> didn't work for him, you know? So, so where I, you've been talking about uh, Straight Outta Compton. For such a long time, I mm-hmm. can't remember when. When did that first become a thing? What year did it kind of enter your life? Uh, and I think people are two thousand and two. Are you serious? Yeah, two thousand and two. And this is and it's also, been continuous since then. I mean, it's no. Been, it, or there's been it, there's been quiet times. Yeah, but but it's, but, but it's always been something you've been working on. And I mean, uh, up until about two thousand and eight, when the whole thing got sold, and then you stop working on it. Because you're done contractually. Yeah. And I can take you through the journey on that. Yeah, let's um, do. Because I mean, number one is you asked me how a white guy got involved. And, and in 2000. Two white guys, actually. Yes. And what happened was. <laughs> Very white guys. The whitest guys. There, yeah. you, in none of your stories so far, <laughs> you haven't exhibited, you know, I come from the mean streets. of. I mean, it no. was like you came in from upper middle class. Yeah. You know, Boston say, suburbs. Yeah, middle to lower middle class. Okay, yeah. all right. But, um. What happened was, but you weren't streetwise, no. you know, southy. I knew who NWA was, and I appreciated who they were, but I did not. Not in hot rotation. In no, your, uh... it was not. <laughs> no, I didn't. I wasn't listening to it incessantly. But what happened was, the the guy I co-wrote it with, Lee Savage, met Jerry Heller, who was the manager of NWA in its heyday, and that's how we started. He introduced me to Jerry Heller, and Jerry Heller started telling us the story of how he was involved. And it was such an amazing story, Larry. He had managed Pink Floyd and Elton John. Right. He had all been these bands. Yeah. big player in music. And he but, had just... But like what we call classic rock now. Right. Like these big rock names. Yeah. And he had gone through what happens to those guys. Did a bunch of coke, went through a divorce, sleeping on his mother's couch in the early 80s. His career's over. He's like 39. So he's being painfully honest oh, with yeah. you about this, oh, like yeah. t- laying it well, all out? now, you know, he's telling me, now he's rich and successful, and he's telling me the story. <laughs> so because, he doesn't care. Yeah, he's like, yeah, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you how I got all these gold records on the wall <laughs> and why I'm living in this mansion. And you're like, okay. So he, um, what happened was he's at a bottom, and he walked into a club in Compton called Eve After Dark, and he discovered what was happening the beginnings of hip hop music. And there it was, was a un- scene. Yes, yeah. exactly. It was a music scene happening and it was raw and undefined. And he identified it. His instincts were there. And he was like, I- there's something happening. So he signed. Well, probably because he saw how people were gravitating to it. I mean, it was just. The clubs. And yeah, also there was this packed, whole right? swap meet culture where they were selling these homemade albums yeah. out of the trunk of their car. And 
so he saw it and he was like, we got to get this music out of the trunk of the car and get a record deal. And he signed teenagers who ended up being Easy e Ice Cube, Dr. Dre, DJ Yella and MC Ren. And with Jerry's input, they formed NWA and put out the first gangster rap album from the West Coast. And it was straight out of Compton. So the story that you're hearing coming from Jerry's perspective, you immediately go, that's that's a story we can tell. That's he something. was telling me a story of a friendship between him and Easy E that was that transcended the story beyond like a boys in the hood or something. It was a real friendship and a father son relationship from from completely different backgrounds. Because yes. I guess what we're not saying here is that Jerry Heller is uh, again another kind of white guy out of mm -hmm. a different, completely different world. But those guys creatively found a bond. Yeah, he Jerry had the experience. Trust. And knew what to do. He got him the record deals. He booked the tours. And he got him all the attention that created NWA. I mean, they were getting letters from the FBI because Jerry was putting them into these arenas. Yeah. And the FBI was like, you can't play these songs. So um, when Jerry told me the story, and by the way, nobody was talking anymore. Um, Easy es widow. Easy had died in 95. Right. There was Easy es widow controlled whatever Easy was supposed to get out of this. And... You know, she was looked upon as Yoko. Ice Cube, Ugh. Ice Cube hated Jerry. Jerry didn't like Ice Cube. Dre didn't talk to Jerry or Easy's widow. No one was talking. So when we got the story from Jerry, and that's the first thing we did. We every Sunday we went and we'd talk to Jerry. It was all on spec. We'd write it up. Um, we're like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, Jerry would tell you stories like, so then we're going, to, we're putting the equipment on the tour bus, and I open a a bag and it's filled with uh, automatic weapons. And I go, <laughs> Easy, you can't take the automatic weapons. On the road. And he's like, we're not going into, uh, you know, strange cities without protection. And you're like, you're a music star. Easy. And so you're like typing it going, keep talking, Jerry. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Oh. I should have turned that off. That's um, all right. It's Jerry. Do <laughs> Quit not, talking about if me. If you badmouth me again, my lawyers will. I'm sorry. When I go off mic, do I go way off? Or... No, that's oh. fine. Um, so once we had the story from Jerry, then we went to Easy E's Widow. Because she controlled the music. Yeah. And you can't do the story yeah, she, without when, the music. When Easy died on his deathbed in the hospital, he married Tamika. And Tamika got control because Easy and Jerry were partners in Ruthless Records and they controlled all the early recordings. Now, Cube and Dre had gone on and had their own solo careers, but these early recordings were what NWA was about. And you're talking about Boys in the Hood, Fuck the Police, Straight Out of Compton. These songs, you can't make the movies. No, so, absolutely. Now, not only did it change the face of hip hop, but it also was that like that FBI angle right, too, exactly. which is like and this. Here's this really incendiary message coming out, and everybody's listening to it. Yeah, and the I mean, this is kind of similar to. A lot of people may not look at it this way, but like the Beatles come out and there's some kind of threat and, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like all these other bands that come out and doing something different and a little revolutionary and, and oh, well, you, you got to shoot Elvis from the waist up. Yep, you know? And youth uh, are flocking to uh, it and responding to it. And it makes any kind of establishment go, oh shit, what's that? We don't know what that is. When John Lennon said, sometimes I think we're even bigger than Jesus, that is such a comment that anybody would have made today, but it created such an amazing, you know, reaction. Right. Radio stations were burning albums and stuff. So you're right. What NWA was doing was exactly what other people were doing. They were like the CNN of the streets. Right. They were looking. They were not saying, 
fuck the police. Can I say that or should I say you F can the say police? anything no. you want? They weren't saying fuck the police to say fuck the police. They were saying fuck the police because I'm walking down the street and suddenly I'm profiled because of the way I look yeah. and the way I'm dressed. And well, they're also just representing the attitude of people. I mean, they they were you're right. They weren't saying it just to cause. A negativity out there. They were reflecting what was really going right. on in their world that nobody else was paying attention. Exactly. To. I mean, they, you're, you're talking about a, a type of music that wasn't on the radio. It wasn't getting played. Didn't anywhere. get any airplay. They and sold millions was, of records. It was though. very grassroots at that time. Mm-hmm. But they were, and it was swap meets, like you say. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, they started going into the clubs with these songs, and that's, and then people started buying the records. Yeah. But they got a record deal from Priority Records. Jerry Heller brought brought the demos of Straight Outta Compton to Priority Records. Brian Turner and Priority Records was literally KTEL Records. And KTEL <laughs> made those kind of first it was albums of duplicate singers or just Yeah, it was it know, was hit of, it was yeah. hit songs as sung by Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sung by the KTEL singers or whoever the band was. Yeah. But their big claim to fame was the California Raisins, which was heard it through the grapevine, these yes. little claymation animated <laughs> raisins, which they then sold and did commercials, but they actually had records by the California Raisins right. that sold. And and we know them today as the Rolling Stones. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. That's my joke. I'm sorry. But so um, Brian Turner and Priority Records, which is really KTEL, put out the first <laughs> album, uh, the NWA album, Straight Outta Compton. Wow. They had done like an EP. Right. But Straight Outta Compton was the first one. And yeah. Do you remember how, I, like in terms of numbers or how... How big did that get? How fast? Do you remember? I think it uh, it ended up through what Jerry and Brian did and the tours and the attention they got. I think it charted at like 28 yeah. on the Billboard charts. It yeah. just scared the crap And it didn't out get any airplay. Yeah. yeah. No, it yeah. couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't. But it was selling. <laughs> Even and edited, it, it was still. And it wasn't just selling to black kids. Yeah, yeah. It was surfers in Huntington Beach yeah, and people were white finding. kids and you know, so at at the point you're hearing all this story, and and you and your co-writer, this is Lee, Lee Savage, Savage yeah. yeah. So you guys are are. It's like, oh my God, there's more material here than we can ever. But you saw the what was the structure? What was the story that you saw that fit the structure that 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 clicked with you in in that old, you know, that ingrained element in you mm-hmm. that said, here's the story as the beats fall out. What was if you pitched it to me right now? What would it have it been? was uh. It was basically starting in Compton. Easy has a near death experience because he's a drug dealer and he has a near death experience dealing drugs where he decides I am out of the drug business because there is a, a music scene going on, as we mentioned, in the clubs and in the swap meets that Easy is looking at. And so he says in the first act, he's like, all right, I'm going to take my money and go into music. And he knew Dre who was with a band called the World Class Wrecking Crew, which was really kind of glam, no edge to it, nothing hard that what Easy wanted to do. So Easy came to Dre. I'm just telling you the story, but Easy came to Dre and said, let's do something more. Let's do something hard. Let's do something about what's going on. There was a big element of the police going on, the Daryl Gates era, and Easy noticed it and Dre noticed it, and they knew O'Shea Jackson, who was Ice Cube. So... Basically, I don't know if you want to go through the beats of the story, but these guys realized that they could do something different, but they had to get it out of the swap meet culture. Although you could make money, you're never going to go anywhere big. And so, yeah, they could have been huge in the neighborhood. Right. But, but, but they needed to make a bigger name. And it was easy who said, look, I see this guy, Jerry Heller hanging around. And Jerry 
Jerry was working a little bit with the world-class wrecking crew, this guy named Lonzo Williams, who was really Dre's partner, who owned the clubs. So Lonzo was a connecting point between the swap meets, this little record label called McCola, and it was really a record-pressing uh, plant, and Eve After Dark, which he owned. Anyway, the point is, Easy went to Jerry Heller, and he said, here's what we've got. And Jerry, when he heard it, realized, this is different, this can make money. And he had the experience to do it. So the first act is really about this swap meet culture, this club culture, these guys forming, Easy having a near-death experience dealing drugs where he's almost killed, and then saying, I want to do music that shows what's going on here in Compton. And he pulls these guys in, and Cube was really the writer. And when they, so Easy got Lonzo to lend them their studio, and that day they brought in some singers from New York called HBO to sing Boys in the Hood, and they looked at it and went, this is too L.A., this is too West Coast, we're from New York. And so Cube was like, get out. You know, we, this is where, you know, this yeah. is where it's happening. We are, we are West Coast. So Easy stepped in and sang it because he had paid for the session. And it all happened accidentally. But the first act oh, is the see, formation. I don't think I knew that. That's yeah, the great. formation of the band going to Jerry Heller. And then the second act is Jerry booking them, letting them be who they are, say what they want. And the attention that came from it, which was the FBI, the police. There was a big thing going on with the police at the time because the police saw black youth as troublemakers and they didn't, they didn't investigate individuals as much as just take it on the surface. Right, right. So Cube and these guys. You know, how, how, how much is that going to parallel? I mean, when this movie comes out in August, you said, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's the immediate comparison that's going to come up is what those guys were railing about in the music and what's going on now between, you know, like police and absolutely. And I mean, it's going to be and a hot button topic mm -hmm. when the movie comes it, it's out. It's going to seem it's going to seem topical. Yeah. And what the other thing is, is that Suge Knight was a bodyguard for another uh, member who was sort of an unofficial member called the DOC, who is a writer. And he had his own albums on Ruthless. But Suge Knight was a bodyguard, and he started looking at Jerry Heller as somebody he could take down. He was like, all right, I can take down Jerry and start my own record label. And Suge Knight brought his thuggery and the street gangster mentality into his business dealings. And, you know, he put a gun to Jerry's head a couple of times and said, we need to see, you know, Dre's contract with Ruthless. There was a lot... <laughs> There was a lot going on, but the rise of Suge Knight and Death Row Records is in this movie. Wow. And the the way the street came into the business. And there's another topical element of it, right. which is Suge's ongoing trial, mm -hmm. which is, am I wrong that he was coming from the set of either the movie or something? They was were being, shooting that a was commercial. related to the, to the yeah. film. Yeah. He was not on the set. Right. He was, uh, they were shooting a commercial. For the movie, which was really Dre and Cube introducing the first trailer, which they right. launched at the Grammys. Okay. And called the Red Band trailer. So did he yeah. crash that, that commercial? He showed show? up because he wanted to talk to Dre, and this is the only way he could get to him nowadays, uh, was to show up and go, Dre's here, shooting this thing. And he goes, I'm Suge Knight, and they wouldn't let him on. They said, no, you can't come on. They weren't shooting the movie. They were shooting a promo. So Suge went down the street, and trouble followed him because tr trouble followed Suge. It just Suge, does. <laughs> yeah. And there was a tussle. But it did not happen on the set. And then he, you know, I don't know if you've seen the security footage, but he definitely ran over yeah, a yeah. couple of guys. What what instigated that? 
what kind of was going on when he backed up and ran back over. Yeah. We don't know. Uh, but the fact is... Boy, those tensions are still very much alive and very raw to this yeah. day, huh? He was... Uh, there were... You know, Suge was texting people and telling people that he did not like the fact that he was in this movie. Yeah. But everything we did with Suge Knight was uh, documented by his police record. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, it's hard to say this isn't true, you know. So are you seeing the buzz on this from from kind of all this other periphery stuff that the that the movie, by the time it finally comes out, I'm surprised they're waiting. Well, the thing August, is with Suge is we don't consider that, um, you know, they attach the movie, it gets buzzed, but some people were killed and we're like. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you're not right. going to. We're not, not going, gonna, hey, nobody with the movie is going to play that up. It's, right. It's, it's tragically coincidental. About for for a lot of reasons mm -hmm. when it comes out, um, so, I think you know what's really happening, Larry, is social networking and Twitter, especially um, when Dre tweets something and you see it retweeted like fifty thousand times right, in, right. in one day. You're like, okay, this was not happening ten years ago. Right. This is how you get the word out. But um, it's uh, also um, it's Dre is bigger than ever. You know, he made that deal with Apple. People know who he is. Yeah. Um, I think Cube is back as a movie star better than ever. Right. You know, there was a time when he was, and there's a time when he got quiet, and now he, he's come back with this ride-along franchise and other things. And you're like... Well, also, and, and, and the music has now, it's come this kind of full circle of, it, it has respect from all areas of the music industry mm -hmm. and, and from and music you know, critics or whatever. It holds of, up of what it what it did, what it started, and how how really seriously it's good on. It was. I think Straight Outta Compton is on is in like number one twenty eight of the five hundred most influential albums of all time right. by Rolling Stone. You know, right? And that there's a lot of albums. You know, so yeah. So let me. So just quick questions because we're. I'm, I don't want to keep you too long, but I, this is great stuff. And and from the kind of Hollywood industry perspective so 2002 is when you first sit down and talk to heller yes and and you sold finally sold the script in 2008 2006 six 2006 right. we sold it to new line all right so and then 2006 it was Dude, in what we had 2006 oh, yeah uh so it's taken nine years to actually go from that to having it released and i will tell you that a quick journey which was we sold it in 2006, but we also had the music rights attached. Right. And that's really what made the difference. And Universal wanted to buy it first. And we were on the phone with Universal. And they were like, yes, we love it. We just want to make sure Dre and Cube are okay. And then New Line just came in and made a better offer. And it was a it was a big offer. Yeah. And we were like, oh, we'll take this. And so, <laughs> so New Line took it. And then what happened was um, Cube and Dre were not necessarily involved. We had, we had Jerry Heller, and we had the music from Easy. We had the story. We had interviewed everybody, but Cube and Dre were sort of like, "Well, we need to get involved." And when they when they came in, New Line let them in the door to say, "Okay, we're going to make deals with you," and that held it up for yeah. about a year. And so then in 2007, there was a writer strike, oh, and God, the writer right. strike, everybody stopped working, and that was probably from November to like maybe April of 2008. And then in 2008, this is the survival of a movie. In 2008, New Line was shut down pretty much by Warner Brothers. Right. They came in. They said, you know, there's like because it was kind of a boutique yeah, type, was, you know, uh, right. eclectic indie. They were style. owned by Warner's, but they didn't 
but they had their own identity. And right. Warner's came in and said, "All right, you." It was I think it was um, that Nicole Kidman movie, The Golden Circle, or you know what I'm talking about? God no! Oh, it was some horrible movie that they spent, you know, billions on. <laughs> they oh, were trying to make wow. another Lord of the Rings. It was. Daniel Craig and Nicole, oh oh it Nicole was the King. yes the, the Golden Compass yes yes because it was based on a, a series of right. books and the Golden but, which Compass. by the way you didn't you never saw the series did right. you <laughs> it did not go anywhere the Golden Compass New Line poured oh all their money God, into it that's right and it came out in like 2007 or something or 2006 and it bombed and and that was it for Warner Brothers they went all right we're taking over New Line and so 400 people at New Line were downsized to like 28 people. And they took over their marketing department. They took over. They dumped all these projects. Straight out of Compton survived. Oh wow! Straight out of Compton survived. And I'm talking about panic in the streets with all these writers and directors who had projects at New Line. So we go up to New Line. They go, "Yes, yeah, Straight out of Compton still alive." And we're like, "Oh, fantastic!" So now we're brought in to do two rewrites in 2008 with Easy E's widow, and she was like, you know, tiny little details. Some of them were very helpful. And um, then we were done in 2008. And they started casting and they started oh, getting directors. Man. And then what happened was Warner Brothers said, geez, we don't know what we're going to do on the foreign here. You know, how do we know? They, they weren't comfortable enough. They were making hangovers and yeah, these movies yeah. that they knew were going to do great. So, so they, and the, and the business was changing. I mean, this was also coming on the heels of, I mean, one of the reasons that New Line went away is because the economy was, had yes. been tanking. Right. And they couldn't, they weren't making big movies anymore or they were only making big mm -hmm. movies with big budgets so this or they of, were franchise movies tempo yeah. movies or and this fell in that kind of little right. category of it's not big enough to move forward uh and, and do we yeah they have to know that it's going to make money because they just weren't green well, I, and i will tell you i will tell you that we originally envisioned the movie with jerry heller as one of the leads because he was, he's literally the catalyst of the story. All the conflicts happen. Right. He gets everything. And we knew that was the movie star role. And then when Ice Cube came in, he was, he still had some old anger with Jerry. And he thought, well, our story is bigger. We need to diminish Jerry's role. And that's when Warner Brothers was like, well, geez, who's the movie star? How do we market and what's going on? How is this going to sell in foreign? So the reason it took so long was on oh, F. Gary Gray came in to direct. Right. And what happened was everything stalled, and then Universal said, we'll take it, who, who originally wanted it. But now Dre and Cube are involved. Yeah. So then it takes another year, Larry, to get everybody's <sighs> contracts. You know? Now, how you've gone through this before. You've been in the Hollywood machine. Like you said, you've written stuff. You've polished stuff. You've been a part of things. How badly did you want this one to go? I mean, this I is knew it was going to get made. You did? I knew because there, are, there aren't that many big music bios that don't end up being VH1 movies. I mean, you know, no right. one's going to go to the big theater to see the Beach Boys movie, you know. Right. It's going to end up on cable. And and HBO does great a great job with a lot of that stuff. But we knew this was cinematic. It had to be R-rated. It had to be edgy. The music was still topical and it felt, you know, today. Yeah. And the topics and the issues. So I knew it was going to get made. It was the timeline of Yeah. And there were the reason this was a little more difficult was there were so many egos and cooks. And and I don't say egos in a negative way, but you've got Dre. No, but you've got Cube. some really strong right. personalities and the widow of Easy e mm -hmm. who wants to protect Easy's legacy. And right, is gonna exactly. Have a, and going to have a say in that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's 
I mean, if, if you look at it just from that perspective, it's amazing it got done. Have mm-hmm. you seen the finished or anything? Close I, to the I haven't. Version? There's a three-hour cut, and I haven't seen it. How do you but feel it's about going the, down? How do you feel about the casting? I think they did a great job. You know, they so who's did playing like, Hiller. Hiller is Paul Giamatti. Uh, uh, hello. Yeah. Which, I mean, wouldn't you have seen if you had thought about that when you were writing it? Wouldn't that have been He's perfect? He's fantastic. Yeah, that's perfect. He's fantastic. Right? Now there were some other actors yeah. that they were trying to get, but it's all people's schedules and who's available sure. to shoot this. And but that's pretty great. Yeah, they were thinking of Kevin Spacey. They were thinking yeah. of Alec Baldwin. I swear, Larry, at one time they were thinking about Ben Stiller. They were going, what about Ben Stiller? But when Giamatti came in, he he was so good and he wanted the role and that he he knocked everybody out of the park. And know? there's a lot of young talent in it. That, yeah, um, they did like American Idol style auditions. Yeah. Washington, Atlanta, Chicago, New York, and they just found these guys. Yeah, they're gonna launch some careers with that, yeah. it looks and like. And I will say that Ice Cube's son is playing him, yeah. which seemed a little bit like, gosh, I don't know. Until you see the kid, and you're like, wow, this kid's good. Oh, and great. I think Ice Cube held him to that standard. He's like, you're not going to get the role unless everybody says you deserve it. you yeah. know. And so yeah. so he's fantastic, but the others are unknowns. So after all this, you feel like that at least something close to the story you wanted to tell Absolutely. actually got to. This is yeah. not Private the, Resort 2 for no, you. No, no. There, <laughs> there's been some... There's been some other writers that came in and dabbled over time. We are the we are the first writers. We're getting we're the credited first writers, and our narrative drive of the story still exists, Ugh. which is Jerry Heller and launching these guys, yeah, yeah. and the, he creates the conflict with Cube. Cube leaves the band. So the you group. feel like you're going to see the movie at least something yes. close to the movie that, that you and Lee started yes. with. Good. Yeah, and we're also co-executive producers. So. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you working on now? It's another... I got hired to write a, a biopic about George Jones, the legendary drinker, country artist, considered the best country... The possum. Yes, exactly. And literally... <laughs> my, con- my father's favorite, bar none, singer-songwriter all time. Really? Yeah. I mean, if it, my dad were You're still... You're from Texas, right? Yeah, yeah. If my dad were still alive today, he would be in tears going, I cannot wait to it's see that. It's a funny movie. And you know, the thing about the George Jones movie... It doesn't have a looming tragedy. He he went all the way down. He outpilled Elvis. He yeah. outsnorted Belushi. He outdrank Jim Morrison. But he he, div- he divorced. Uh, yeah, right he left. was married to Tammy Wynette. <laughs> yeah. she, she tried to. She took the band from him in the divorce. But the thing is, George lived to eighty-one. Yeah. And so when you're writing the movie, you're like, you know what? I'm going to write a fun movie. Yeah. There's no looming tragedy. George did go all the way down. Yeah. But he came all the way back up. He stayed on top. He still had number one hits. He still, in 1981, won Album of the Year. He started in the 50s, you know. it's um, He did some crazy stuff. And this is a day, Larry, when there was no Betty Ford Clinic in the 70s yet. No. So when no, you were... you didn't even say the word alcoholic. Oh, yeah. Then. It exactly. was just, you were just, you were that... You, you were, were crazy. You were just that guy. And what they did with George was, when it was time to dry out, they'd literally throw him in a padded cell in a straitjacket, and that was how you drive. out. That was rehab. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that, that, was, that, that was the phrase that didn't, hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> there no, rehab. Exactly. There was no such thing. There was no garden terrace overlooking the ocean in Malibu. Malibu right. yeah. You know, paying 30000 a month. Yeah, a padded cell somewhere in Macon, Georgia, <laughs> exactly. where you dry out for a week. That was it. You yeah. know, he's going to shake, but he's not going to hurt himself. You know? Oh, man. And that's, that's what happened to That's going to be Jerry. interesting. It's a funny movie. Yeah. And uh, I, I say funny in the sense of Fargo is funny. Yeah. And it still has murder and kidnapping <laughs> yeah. in it. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Very cool. Well, man, that's exciting. It's so good to see 
something come to fruition in a way that you had originally wanted to see it. Now, we're going to wrap things up here because, uh, and the movie comes out again. August 14th, this summer, and uh, it's going to be big. Yeah. It's going to be, it's very, all the kids want to see it and people who were involved at that time listening to the music. Here's the thing, though, that people are going to be asking, how do I know Alan Wink is from? Um, what do I know Alan Wink is from? When you were a child, you were a very high-profile spokesperson for a certain product. For Drake's Ringdings, <laughs> which is on YouTube. Yes, I uh, I wrote and starred in my own Ringding commercial. Now, if you don't know Drake's, it's like Hostess. You know, Drake's is like in It 13... was a regional thing, yes, right? Yes, exactly. 13 states. And um, so I wrote uh, literally on the back of a cupcake box. It was like, write your own commercial and win a free Super 8 camera. And I was like, oh, I can do that. So I wrote two and I submitted them. And then apparently I won first and second prize. Nobody entered. <laughs> <laughs> but your commercial. Yeah. And they called me and said, yeah. we want you to come to New York. It was Needham, Harper and Steers with the ad agency. We want you to come to New York and make this commercial. And I was Dracula and I, I rose up. It was a beautiful set and it's on YouTube. Uh, classic Drake's ringding commercial is the title. And I rise up out of this pit, and I'm like, for years, I gave people a pain in the neck. But now I sink my teeth into Drake's ringdings. And the director on the set, boy, could I not act, is all I could say. <laughs> I was 15 years old. But the director on the set, Larry, was like, no, the, the guys from the ad agency were like, um, all right, look, you're Dracula, and you've got to say creamy filling, creamy filling. It's like blood to you. You have to say, I love creamy filling. And the director goes, Jesus Christ, the kid's not George C. Scott. <laughs> that, that's all I remember. <laughs> oh, but yes, man. that is on YouTube under Classic Ringing Commercial. All right. There you go. Uh, Alan's uh, many claims to fame. You have an eclectic career, my friend. Oh, thank you, Larry. Congratulations. And, yes, and it's I'm taking you with me. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow, I don't even know what that means. Should I be excited or scared to death? Yes. Thanks, man. Good luck. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Get a monkey. Get a monkey! This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.